Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Anoush. And I'm Alpha. On today's episode of the New Statesman podcast, we discuss the release of Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe. And you ask us, after a decade of austerity, why is the government borrowing more? Is it down to the pandemic or are there other factors? So after six years of detention in Iran, Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe has finally been reunited with her family, along with uh, fellow British Iranian detainee Anoushe Ashouri, who was also finally released after five years in prison in Tehran. Now, you interviewed Richard when he was doing a hunger strike, I think last year, was it last mm-hmm, year? Yeah. And it was a really moving interview. And I think it, I think it's touched a lot of people because you asked him things that perhaps he hadn't been asked about for years, about his relationship and, and and how he was feeling about the family dynamic. Can you tell me a bit about what he told you and what the reunion reminded you of when you spoke to him? It was such a privilege. I'm sure you feel the same way, Anish, that just sometimes you're really struck by what a privilege it is to be a journalist and an interviewer, because even though you're going to eventually relay the conversation that you're having to thousands of readers, you just are really struck that you're the person who gets to have that conversation and to be right in front of the person asking the, the kind of nosy, intimate questions and, and, and often having a really intimate conversation. So when I went to see Richard Ratcliffe, it was day 13 of his hunger strike on the steps of the Foreign Office and I'd seen him on night 12 as well. I'd, I'd gone to just chat to him the night before as well and he had a steady stream of people coming up to see him, most of them bursting into tears once they saw him and he was quite exhausted. His sort of voice was a whisper because he was just quite weak after being on hunger strike for that long and I felt really privileged that unlike most people who just got a sort of nod, he was taking the time while feeling quite weak, to really speak to me at length. It was just a really moving experience. I'd just sit really close to him because his voice was so quiet and there's a big crowd around him, but it was just a really intimate conversation. And as you say, I loved doing that interview because I'm like incredibly soppy. (laughs) And I was just really struck when I was with him by the sort of the gesture of love that his hunger strike represented and there were there was sort of bunting behind him that children at Gabriella, his daughter's school, had designed. And one of the bits of bunting said, love is a superpower and you're a hero, Richard. And so I asked him about that and he was quite bashful about it. But I think I just drew out of him his feelings about marriage and commitment to Nazanin. 
and this idea of you know his role as a husband I don't think it made it into the final write-up because you know everything he said was so interesting but there were like limits on space but he talked about the need to be the public campaigning husband and then the private supportive husband and trying to get the balance and not always getting it right but if he didn't get it right she'd tell him (laughs) (laughs) he was like and she does but just him talking quite quietly and and unassumingly about just always trying to be there for her and when she was first taken into detention in Iran when she was in solitary confinement they told her that Richard Ratcliffe had run off with another woman and so on and that's a quite common device to sort of undermine the prisoner while they're in detention and so he felt it was really important to just show that he hadn't abandoned her and that was a a six-year campaign and yeah he said some really lovely moving things so he said it wasn't a Mills and Boone story (laughs) 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 he told me to catch myself on but then he was saying that he was like you can narrate our story as a love story it is like all ordinary families are I just thought that was lovely and so romantic so I just have this sense of of just being so happy for him and little Gabriella and their wider family who were there the whole time his father his sister Nazanin's brother that that whole family have been missing her for years and Mm. just his campaign paying off and I think it's just really moved people that he's a very charismatic character and his very public commitment to her over such a long time has I think captured people's imagination and taught us a sort of a quiet quite English lesson about commitment and and marriage and love. Yeah that's what I was going to say I think there's a reason why um, his particular sort of brand of campaigning captured the public's imagination because there is a sort of English understatement about him he talked about them being an ordinary family to you which Mm. is such a it's like a bizarre quote in a way but it's such a lovely quote I I remember I, I went to interview him when he was doing his first hunger strike back in 2019 it was to coincide with Nazanin's third one and he was outside the Iranian embassy and I was asking what does Gabriella think when both her parents aren't eating and he said oh she's okay she understands mummy and daddy are on hunger strike and that means that mummy and daddy don't eat those are the rules don't worry about it those kind of statements which do portray a sort of British understatement I think have been something that like everyone has been able to relate to on some level and of course many MPs and other politicians have been moved by their story too But you do write in Morning Call, in the morning email and in your piece as well, that you can't ignore the sort of political context of this, that while it is a victory for the Foreign Secretary, Liz Truss, who succeeded where many of her predecessors have failed in negotiating to pay that historic debt the UK owed £400 million to Iran, being able to pay it without breaking sanctions, she figured out a way of doing that but you also can't ignore the fact that the West in general is turning to the Middle East for oil amid Mm. the energy crisis that's been caused by Russia's invasion of Ukraine so I wonder whether those political implications are being picked over yet or if it's just still a story of a family finally reunited Yeah I think that's the question, how much of an achievement is this for Liz Truss? On the surface it's a huge achievement for her she's done something that all previous foreign secretaries failed to do since Nazanin was detained. That's obvious, but actually it's not just Boris Johnson who failed on that front. Dominic Raab did, Jeremy Hunt did. So it's a quite special achievement for her and she hasn't been in her role for that long. But I think it's difficult to unpick how much it's just the changing global context that has aligned in her favour. And I've found that speaking to people since the news of Nazanin's release yesterday, people are sort of unwilling to really, you know, thrash that out, even Labour people, because it's just such a good news story. I think it is the case that 
in general, Western relations with Iran have improved since Trump left office, for example. You know, there is more appetite to secure a deal with Iran, probably a bit more appetite for Iranian oil to be available in international markets again, given, you know, the turning away from Russian oil and gas. So those things have have been happening anyway. And then how that intersects with the repayment of that historic debt, which is separate. I feel like I haven't got a good answer from anyone in terms of how that intersects with wider relations with Iran in terms of oil. So it's definitely a sign that in general, British relations with Iran are better and maybe out of necessity for this political moment. But it's still a big achievement for Liz Truss because we've been saying for years and Richard Ratcliffe has been saying for years it would just be so easy we need to repay this debt Mm. but no one's managed to do it because of the perceived difficulty around international sanctions but also because it is tricky to talk about that debt that the UK has owed because of a sort of botched arms deal before the Iranian revolution because in a way that sets a precedent allowing future hostage situations where foreign power cites a historic debt or something and uses an individual life or several lives to justify that. And so it's been tricky. The Ratcliffe's have been really clear that they needed that debt to be repaid and that it was a legitimate debt. But it's funny when you write about it, you have to say widely perceived as or cited by the Iranians as the cause of the reason, so as to not justify it. Because, you know, taking hostages is not really an acceptable bargaining tactic. It's just a tricky one. I think that Liz Truss and Boris Johnson will see this as just a huge achievement. And, you know, I think if it's not a bit crass to see this through the lens of a future Tory leadership race, she will definitely see this as a as a string to her bow and, and another case that the person to succeed Boris Johnson should be her. That jostling is still happening under the surface. Mm. And so this is a small point. Liz Truss won, Ben Wallace, I don't know how many he's on. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it feels like it's a sort of frivolous thing to discuss in light of the hell that this family has been through. But actually, it was something that Richard Ratcliffe was really aware of when I spoke to him, because it was June 2019. So it was during that Tory leadership contest that Boris Johnson and Jeremy Hunt, another former foreign secretary who failed to secure Nazanin's release, were running in. And he was quite outspoken when I spoke to him, of course, very softly spoken. He was really hungry and you know, his throat was cracked, etc. But he was saying quite strongly that he was frustrated that Boris Johnson hadn't apologised for, you know, erroneously telling that select committee hearing back when he was foreign secretary that Nazanin had been simply teaching people journalism in Iran, which Richard said had been used against her ever since by the Iranian authorities. And that gaffe, if you can call it a gaffe, Johnson hasn't been able to shake that even while being prime minister. Mm. And it's the apotheosis of how poorly he performed in the role as foreign secretary. And then he also was very attuned to how politics in the UK's sort of changing role in the world affected their case. At that time, Iran had shot down a US drone and Donald Trump had threatened Ayatollah Khomeini with obliteration. So relations were much worse between the West and Iran than now, as you laid out. And he also said that Brexit had been bad for their case because it taken all of that diplomatic bandwidth out of issues like theirs and mm. focused the foreign office on other issues. And in that sense, they had a sort of softly approach to Iran while Britain's place was seemingly shrinking in the world. So I think that the Ratcliffe family will be keenly aware of the political context of their story regarding Nazanin's release as well. So I think it will be something that will potentially play out in sort of domestic politics, particularly in in the form of a, a Tory leadership contest in the future. 
And it's interesting as well. I wonder how much of a public role the two of them will want to play now. They've been so prominent for years. Probably Richard Ratcliffe and Gabriella have become used to it around London, but it'll be quite new to Nazanin being out and suddenly being a very recognisable figure. It's just hard to know yet whether they will want to continue advocating for some of the things that they were advocating before because one thing that I was also struck by speaking to Richard Ratcliffe was that he, and then I suppose by extension Nazanin, were both very engaged with the wider politics of hostage taking and, and as you were saying, all those relations with Iran and so on, that it wasn't just about securing her release, but the broader sort of British diplomatic tactics around hostages. There are still British hostages in Iran. One has been released but hasn't returned to the UK yet. Richard Ratcliffe, as you were saying, because of his particular sort of very English appeal, has a platform now and I don't know whether he'll want to use that and whether Nazanin will as well or whether they would quite understandably just like to go back to being a really normal family and we'll never hear from them again. Yeah, that would be so interesting. I always remember the quote from your interview where he talked about how they would still argue about putting the bins out and things like that. And there was such a wistfulness there, like a yearning for normality. So I wonder if he just wants to get back to being a normal family for a bit and we won't hear from them for a while. But of course, it's inevitable that he has taken on the burden of a campaigner in terms of the British government overlooking human rights abuses in various regimes. And now that we look at the UK warming up of its relationship with Saudi Arabia, there's going to be so many points of of, of contention for the UK's place in the world in this new sort of era of, of the war. It would be a shame to lose that voice. Hello, it's Alva here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to The New Statesman with a very special offer. At the moment, you can subscribe from £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for £12. If you go to www.newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. From the New Statesman World Review comes France Elects, a special podcast series exploring the main candidates and the big issues shaping the campaign to be France's next president. I'm Ido Vok, and over the next two months, I'll be joined by special guests to dissect incumbent Emmanuel Macron's record, his rivals to the right and left, and key issues such as foreign policy and the climate. Just search World Review on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. And now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. 
So we've got a question from Mark today. He asks, after a decade of austerity, I was surprised to hear that the UK's public spending is set to rise to its highest level since the Second World War. Is this rise mainly due to the pandemic or are there other significant factors involved? Now, I think that Mark is referring to the fact that um, borrowing as a percentage of GDP reached um, its highest levels since the Second World War. And also, I think the tax burden is about to reach its highest levels since the Second World War. So our economy is changing. And I suppose we've got the spring statement coming up next week. Rishi Sunak's got some big decisions to make because while his previous offer was quite generous in terms of public spending, there is a tax rise on its way. And I think he's still walking that tightrope between sort of a more Johnsonian sort of statist economy and the austerity that the Conservative Party has been used to over the past decade. Are you picking anything up about the spring statement? What kind of statement will it be? Yeah, well, it's interesting. So far, the the briefing from around Rishi Sunak is very much these sanctions are really expensive and people don't realise how expensive they really are, how painful that's going to be. And also post-pandemic don't realise how little the Treasury can really do about that, how exposed the British economy just is to the effect of sanctions. That's their line at the moment, which Labour people are not taking very seriously. I think they, they think that the Treasury approach is just downplay the room for manoeuvre that, that they currently have, so that when Rishi Sunak does eventually announce something to address the cost of living crisis, something that can alleviate the pain for individual families at the moment, that that looks a bit more impressive. So I suppose Labour people have been saying that he would be politically daft not to seize this. One person was saying to me they could understand Rishi Sunak's reluctance a few weeks or months ago, it feels like an eternity ago, mm-hmm. while Boris Johnson's leadership was on the rocks. Rishi Sunak was, I don't know, leaving him out in the cold or not taking steps to ease some of the pain on individual families, introducing these tax hikes so that he hopefully can cut them down the tracks. But the lay of the land is so different now. Boris Johnson's in place. There's been a kind of reset. So they're saying... It looks quite bad if the the subtext of this is Rishi Sunak as Chancellor, the man in charge of the economy, is not going to do anything. He'll only really help if he's Prime Minister. I think that was a little bit the subtext before. Now that things have changed, I think he probably is under pressure to bring in some kind of not furlough scheme level or anything close, but just something that will ease the pressure on energy bills because otherwise it's just going to be really tricky for the government. There'll be another energy price cap rise in October and we're looking at £2,000 a year rise for the typical home on energy bills alone. But that could be even higher for people who are on lower wages who tend to have fixed payments for their for their gas and electric. And it looks like a disaster down the line and it did before... Russia invaded Ukraine. So that's exacerbated the crisis. And what's interesting is that you're getting some consumer rights campaigners, as well as people in the Labour Party, basically saying this rhetoric of we're all willing to sacrifice our comfort for the people of Ukraine is a little bit disingenuous. Martin Lewis, uh, Mm. the money saving expert, talked about a deliberate narrative shift from the government saying that we have to make these sacrifices because of the war. But actually, energy and fuel costs have been 
rising already, shop prices going up. This problem has exacerbated the problem we already had with inflation. And so it really can't just be the government's line that, oh, sanctions are buffeting our economy and there's nothing we can do about it because we're helping people in Ukraine. That, I think, would be a betrayal of the British people who are already really struggling. It seems that the tax rise will be going ahead. Boris Johnson was wobbling on it, wasn't he, in January when he was at the mercy of his backbenchers Mm. during the sort of throes of Partygate. But Rishi Sunak strong-armed him into writing that op-ed, that joint op-ed in the Sunday Times, committing to it. Mm. Seems like it is going to go ahead. Obviously, Rishi Sunak doesn't want to borrow without making sure that there is revenue coming in. That is his sort of perspective on the economy. So I don't see that necessarily changing. But like you say, there have to be some provisions that come in to help people, whether that's making that council tax rebate, these sort of imperfect little bit of help for energy bill rises, whether it's making that more generous, changing universal credit, perhaps another tweak to the taper rate like they did before. Michael Gove actually told our new political editor, Andrew Marr, on his show that there would be help for poorer Mm. families down the line. So I imagine that's what the Treasury is working on. But it really is going to have to be enough to cushion all of these changes, both that have been happening in the medium term and also exacerbated by the invasion. And it's just interesting, the battle over the narrative at the moment, because the people around Rishi Sunak aren't setting expectations very high that there will be much help. And I think that is just to confound people, to set the bar low. But they also make the case, not unreasonably, that we've just had one unprecedented economic crisis and now there's essentially another one. But this one's different because there are fewer measures that they can take and it's harder for them to intervene. There's just more exposure. Versus, I suppose, the Labour argument that actually, sure, the crisis in Ukraine has exacerbated things, but different European economies are responding differently and that's the product of over a decade of how the economy has been managed by the Conservative government and so for example it's something like nearly 30 energy companies have gone bust within the past year in the UK which is not a thing that is happening in other European countries. As you say the underlying problems are more ingrained than just what's happening in Ukraine but I don't know yet whether the British public is... Well, we know that they're feeling the, the pinch, definitely, but whether they attribute the cause to Ukraine or to the Conservative government or a bit of both. And I think that's where they're fighting it out at the moment. That would be really interesting to find out because... The recent polling that we've done have shown that people think that the government has a responsibility to help them with the rise in energy costs. And the vast majority of people have noticed that the price of their shopping has gone up, for example. But it could be if the government successfully shifts the narrative that people put the reasons for those price rises down to what's happening globally rather than the way that the economy is managed in the UK. So that will be an interesting thing to keep an eye on. And part of Mark's question was actually, is it just the pandemic that has changed the way that the UK is spending? And I think it's an interesting question because actually, he says, after a decade of austerity, while austerity policies have been massively dialed down under Boris Johnson, the impact of austerity continues. So if you look at the sort of criminal justice system, the courts backlog and other sort of parts of our state that perhaps don't have the loudest voice. They are fraying. It's not an exaggeration to say that they are near breaking point. So I think there are bits of the state that that the Labour Party knows are under extreme pressure because of that decade of austerity. Public sector pay will be another really painful pinch point for the government as well, because those wages in real terms haven't really gone up. So, you know, that there will be 
points of pain for the government that it will not be able to shift onto the fact of Putin deciding to invade his neighbour. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shekelian, and my colleague, Alva Ray. We're produced by Mae Robson and Adrian Bradley, and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening, and don't forget to subscribe and leave us a nice review. Listener.